Hi, and welcome to another episode of Asia Bridge, the podcast where we present the best of Asia society programming in 15 minutes or less. I'm Matt Schiavenza. When the diplomat Richard Holbrook collapsed in Hillary Clinton's office and died in 2010, he was involved in one of the most challenging assignments of his career, managing the American relationship with Afghanistan and Pakistan. Holbrook hoped that Afghanistan would be the latest salvo in a career defined by some of America's biggest foreign policy moments, Vietnam, China, Bosnia. But from the start, his work on Afghanistan ran into resistance from President Barack Obama, who taken office the year before, promising to untangle the United States from foreign conflicts. In his new biography, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, George Packer described how Obama grew tired of Holbrook's big personality and constant references to Vietnam, a war that the young president viewed as irrelevant to the country's current conflicts. Packer recently spoke about his book with Suzanne Nossel of PEN America at Asia Society, where Holbrook served for seven years as chairman. He began by reading a passage that revealed the differences between the president and diplomat. On February 13, Holbrook was in Kabul on his first trip to the region since his appointment. In the Situation Room, the president and his advisors were meeting to make a final decision on the troops. Hillary Clinton was giving a speech at Asia Society and had asked Holbrook to fill in for her. He sat in a darkened room in the U.S. Embassy, connected by secure video teleconference to the White House. It was past midnight in Kabul, and Holbrook was tired. When Obama called on him, he began to read from notes he'd written down in a lined copybook. Let me speak on Secretary Clinton's behalf and at her direct instructions in support of option two. This was the option to send 17,000 combat troops in one deployment rather than splitting them up into two tranches. We do so with reluctance and mindful of the difficulties entailed in any troop deployment. This is a difficult decision, especially at a time when Afghanistan faces a political and constitutional crisis over its own elections that further complicates your decision. As your first decision to send troops overseas and into combat, as opposed to Iraq, this decision lies at the savage intersection of policy, politics, and history. Who talks like this, Obama murmured. He sounded genuinely puzzled. Everyone around the situation room table heard him, but Holbrook, 7,000 miles away, didn't hear and kept going. It is in many ways strange to send more American troops into such a potentially chaotic political situation. If we send more troops, of course we deepen our commitment with no guarantee of success, and the shadow of Vietnam hovers over us. Obama interrupted him. Richard, what are you doing? Are you reading something? Holbrook on screen explained that the secretary had wanted to be sure the president heard her views accurately. He continued, but if we do not send more troops, the chances of both political chaos and Taliban success increase. Why are you reading, Obama insisted. Holbrook stopped to explain again. He managed to get through the rest of his notes, which could have been summed up in a couple of lines, but he had lost the president. He didn't understand what he'd done wrong, only that Obama sounded annoyed and ignored him for the rest of the meeting. 
It was the worst encounter he'd had with a president since Jimmy Carter chewed him out in South Korea in 1979 over troop withdrawals. He regretted reading his notes aloud. He'd done so in order not to ramble on, but it had sounded like a speech or a first draft of his memoirs. A few younger people seated back against the walls found it exciting to hear this old lion talk about savage intersections. But no one around the table wanted to be addressed like that. And when Obama expressed irritation, they could only conclude that Holbrook was already out of favor with the new president, which meant that nobody had to worry about it. After the meeting, Obama told Jones that he would tolerate Holbrook in the Situation Room only if he kept his remarks short and that he wanted to be in Holbrook's presence as little as possible. Holbrook believed that the lessons from Vietnam could be applied to the Afghanistan war, which Obama had promised to unwind. But the president strongly disagreed. Here's Packer. I can't help thinking the heart of the matter was Vietnam. Holbrook brought it up all the time. He couldn't resist. He passed around copies of a book he'd recently reviewed, Lessons in Disaster, about McGeorge Bundy and the fatally flawed decisions that led to escalation. He invoked the critical months of 1965 so portentously that Obama once asked him, is that the way people used to talk in the Johnson administration? It wasn't that Holbrook was becoming a Vietnam boar, a sodden old vet staggering out of the triple canopy jungle to grab strangers by the shirt front and make them listen to his harrowing tale. Obama actually didn't want to hear about Vietnam. He told his young aides that it, was, that it wasn't relevant, and they agreed. Vietnam was ancient history. Obama was three when Clark Clifford warned Johnson not to send ground troops. Dennis McDonough and Ben Rhodes were years from being born. You could understand the response. What was Obama supposed to do with the analogy? It didn't tell him how many more troops could make a difference in Helmand province. It told him that his presidency might be destroyed by this war. It was the note of doom in the Situation Room. It turned Holbrook into a lecturer, condescending to the less experienced man. And that was as intolerable to Obama as flattery. He liked young, smart, ultra-loyal staffers. He didn't like big, competitive personalities. The divide between them began with temperament, widened with generation, and ended in outlook. Obama, half Kenyan, raised in Indonesia, Pakistani friends in college, saw himself as the first president who understood the United States from the outside in. He grasped the limits to American power and knew that not every problem had an American solution. The Bush administration and Clinton's before it had fallen prey to the hubris of a lone superpower. Then came the Iraq war and the economic collapse and a reckoning required us to sober up. Obama wouldn't say so, but his task was to manage our decline, which meant using power wisely. He embodied his long, slender fingers pressed skeptically against his cheek as he listened from the head of the table in the Situation Room, the very opposite of the baggy grandiosity that thought we could do anything and the craven fear of being called weak for not trying. My guess is Obama wasn't thinking of the Berlin Airlift or the Dayton Peace Accords, only of the impulses that sank America in Vietnam 
and Iraq. The president and his aides believed these were Holbrook's impulses too, when in fact he was only saying, be careful, it could happen to you. Packer elaborated on this point during his conversation with Nossel. I mean, I think it's primarily generational. Obama was self-consciously putting himself in opposition to the foreign policy establishment from the beginning of his campaign to the last day of his presidency. All you have to do is read my Atlantic boss, Jeff Goldberg's great essay, The Obama Doctrine, to know that in some ways, Obama's main <laughs> adversary on foreign policy was the establishment. And Holbrook to Obama was very much a part of that. So there was deep skepticism about Holbrook all through the inner circle, partly because of the roughness of the campaign in 2008, and partly because of what they thought they knew about Holbrook and about his generation. So I think there was a conscious uh, effort to scale back our ambitions, our commitments, our sense that we could solve these problems. Holbrook was skeptical too, and this is one of the, maybe the missed opportunities that made it rather tragic. Holbrook wasn't cheering on 60,000 more troops in Afghanistan. He had grave reservations. He did not share them with the president or with the people in the Situation Room. And the reason is, by the time the big surge decision was being debated in the fall of 2009, he knew that the president didn't like him. And he felt isolated. And his only real supporter was Hillary Clinton. And she was all for the surge. And he could not afford to have daylight between him and Hillary Clinton in the Situation Room. So those views stayed within a very small circle and didn't get expressed at that table, but they led him to push hard for negotiations with the Taliban. As he wrote in his diary, we cannot win this by military means. That's something that the military didn't think at that time. David Petraeus thought he could win this war, or at least pound the Taliban into submission so that they would be begging for talks. Holbrook's view, and it came from Vietnam, was you don't talk um, when you're beginning to withdraw troops, which is when Obama, Obama had promised that the surge troops would begin to leave in July 2011. Holbrooks believed you talk when you're at your maximum strength. Um, and he thought we should talk then, and we didn't. He could not get the White House, the military, the CIA, and to some extent his own boss, Hillary Clinton, behind it adequately to really push for negotiations at, before his death, which happened. He literally had his heart attack while talking to Hillary Clinton in her office about talks with the Taliban. Packer explained how Holbrook's vision for American foreign policy balanced idealism with selfishness, a balance that President Donald Trump has not attempted. He was, he was a, someone who really saw, I think, other people and did not imagine that everyone was either like us or wanted to be governed by us or to be told what values to have by us. He had a, a real sense that people are autonomous. They want to be free. They want to make their own decisions. His own agency, I think, led him to see the agency of others. And Vietnam was where that began, where whatever we did, the Vietnamese seemed to say, no, we don't want that. Um, how does it fit with 
interventionism? Well, I think Holbrook, as I've said, was not a militarist. He did not see the US military using force as the answer to problems. In Bosnia, he saw force and diplomacy in alignment as the answer. Without force, the diplomacy had failed and would have continued to fail. Without diplomacy, the force would have just created a desert. Um, so I say at the beginning that he had these two really driving qualities, idealism and egotism. Idealism without egotism is feckless. And a country that thinks that it's going to have a foreign policy entirely based on human rights and self-determination and generosity and selflessness and altruism is not a country. That's an NGO. <laughs> but a country entirely based on selfish interest and us alone and transactionalism is called Trump's America. And in between those two, there is a marriage of the, those two forces in Holbrook, the selfish and the idealistic. And they needed each other because without idealism, egotism is destructive. And American power is destructive without idealism. And I think at his best, he, he brought those into harmony. Uh, and we see that in, in almost every one of his achievements. And that's why at the beginning of the book I say I, I miss that era. As, as full of folly as, as it was, as wrong as Vietnam was, as wrong as so many things were, I miss it. Because the alternative is not America the NGO. The alternative is Trump's America. Thank you for listening to Asia Bridge. If you want to hear more, you can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Asia Society. Until next time, this is Matt Skiavenza.